Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. As always, I'm your host, Natasha Turner, ESG Clarity's Global Deputy Editor. I'm recording this on my birthday ahead of my sustainable summer holiday, which I'll be writing up for the series we've been publishing on readers' sustainable summer plans. I'm also recording this the week that Boris Johnson has resigned, so things in UK government are getting messy, which seamlessly segues me into the messy sustainable transition, or I should have said this uh, seamlessly transitions me into the messy sustainable transition, but anyway... It's a Friday, it's no no time for puns. But this was the topic of conversation during the first panel session at our recent Global ESG Summit. So for today's podcast, we're sharing the recording of the UK stream of that panel, which was moderated by Natalie Kenway. And after that, as always, we have the next episode from the fascinating work of oceanographer Dr Emma Boland, in which she goes into more detail about one of her projects with bass. So please do enjoy this episode, like, subscribe, let us know what you think, and uh, enjoy the first panel. It feels quite appropriate that our first panel is on climate reporting and adaptation. Um, Thank you all for joining me. I'll get you to introduce yourselves when I've asked the first question, if that's okay. Um, So I think it's fair to say we've seen leaps forward in terms of climate reporting, TCFD rolled out in the UK, other countries following suit. We've also seen the first proposals around the sustainable disclosure requirements for the ISSB, which was only announced, uh, the creation of which was only announced at COP26 in November last year. So what what would you like to see when you're um, speaking to companies through your investing or or clients? What what do you like to see in terms of climate reporting and disclosure? Paul, I'll start with you first, if that's okay. Um, yeah. If you could introduce yourself first, that would be great. Good afternoon. My name is Paul Udall. Uh, I'm a portfolio manager at Lombardodio. I manage the uh, Climate Transition Fund at Lombardodio, and I've been managing climate strategies for the last 15 years. Uh, so it's a very good question. Uh, we spend a lot of time within our uh, team meeting with companies, particularly engaging with them on net zero, uh, and trying to encourage, but also... Um, get better data from them so we can uh, track their progress. Uh, I think the key things for us are there's been a lot of new uh, disclosures, particularly around um, carbon emissions. Uh, The piece of work we're doing at the moment is around scope three emissions and supply chain reporting. Uh, So we still find that the data uh, is pretty poor when it comes to companies understanding their scope three emissions, uh, but also understanding the impact that they have on the economy and, and particularly their supply chain. Uh, so that's uh, sort of ongoing work. The other point I'll probably make is for certain sectors, I think the data is, is fairly good, but there are lots of other sectors that have been quite slow uh, to kind of come that's to uh, understand the importance of this data. And I think financial services is probably one that uh, could do a lot of improvement, uh, particularly banks, financial institutions, uh, not only on the risk side, but also the, you know, the impact they can have through uh, better alignment with net zero. Mm, yeah, it's interesting you say that as an industry that we are obsessed with data, aren't we? That we're one of those that are behind. Um, Natalie, I wanted to ask you um, if, yeah, brief, briefly introduce yourself and what do you look for in terms of climate reporting? Yes, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Natalie Chocolinger. I'm a portfolio manager at Federated Hermes. Um, I work on the credit team and I manage um, two different sustainable credit strategies, one of which is a climate change high yield strategy. Um, very similar to Paul, um, there's a plethora of data out there. 
and we analyze as much of it as we can that we think makes sense. But we also acknowledge there is huge dispersion amongst a lot of the data that is out there. So we have um, we prioritize engagement as a key tool to use in terms of assessing the quality of the data that the companies are producing and the plans that they intend to put in place to help them on the transition pathway. Um, we do value SBTIs quite heavily. Um, the SBTI initiative put out a report in 2020 which said that companies that have SBTIs will decarbonize generally at a much faster rate than those that don't. I think the figures were roughly they will decarbonize at 6.4% per annum versus those that don't. Um, so enable them to more easily achieve sort of the one and a half degree scenario. The other things we look for when we're assessing company financial data is how much OPEX and CAPEX are they investing in climate transition pathways? And also um, thinking about their energy mix. Um, if they are, you know, if they're still sourcing a decent amount of energy from fossil fuels, how do they intend to phase that out? What are they doing in terms of increasing their renewable usage? So it's more granular company data as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and Stephanie, um, you're coming at this from a slightly different angle with your work on Climate Action 100. What, what you're working with companies on climate reporting and disclosure, what are the key things that you're looking for or talking to them about? Great. So yes, I'm um, very happy to be here. So Stephanie Marr, Global Head of um, Sustainable Impact Investment at GAM Investment. So as an asset manager yourselves, but I also sit on the steering committee of Climate Action 100 Plus, um, which is one of the largest uh, engagement investor engagement initiatives on, on climate change. So I think from a um, you know from our own perspective, I think a lot of the the um, sort of focus areas for disclosure um, have been have been well covered. I think one of the things we also look at is perhaps some of the more qualitative and forward looking elements as well. So you know the, the important to kind of look at the, the the governance, the strategy, and what are actually those data points that that help you understand where that company is and where it is likely to be in the, the, the future. So the Climate Action 100 Plus released its second annual benchmark um, in March, so earlier this year. You know, what, we can, what we can see there is that, you know, in general, the 160 or so focused companies, so these are you know, largest greenhouse gas um, emitters, have made strong progress on you know, having a board member responsible, uh, disclosing actually in line with TCFD know more more broadly and you know over 70% have actually made that you know 2050 net zero commitment but what we're not seeing is you know the the detail as you mentioned the sort of you know the capex how how well is that that plan aligned how are they going to achieve it what are some of those interim targets um you know as well so great 2050 but you know what are the 2030 2040 targets and and the question about scope comes up a lot because you know again what part of that business is in its obviously direct control but how are they going to look at you know the risks associated with with scope three you know when they're in the supply chain yes but also when they're in you know when when they're in the product mix as well and so seeing this as a much broader sort of transition piece we need to look at at that um that kind of more holistic and sometimes you know qualitative as well as the quantitative uh, data uh, and disclosure mix as well fantastic and um tom coming this as uh, as someone who buys and selects funds are you getting that data that you need or disclosure from the fund managers that you're having conversations with? Uh, hi, everyone. I'm uh, Tom Caddick, Head of Investments at uh, Ned Group Investments. And yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, we don't, you know, I don't purport to be an, an expert in 
in sustainable investing. I think we're part of, we're on this as part of a journey, which I'm sure everyone in this room is is feeling at the moment. And when we're looking and we're we're asking that very question of some of the managers that we look to potentially invest in, it's trying to understand a number of things. Number one, do they understand the pathway that they need to be on? Because when we're looking at it at a portfolio level, fundamentally when it's just data driven, it is just a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet can change the next day. Mm. You know, the, the portfolio can be turned over and it can look great from a data perspective the next day when it might screen poorly today. So from our perspective, it's to understand the pathway that they're on, the resource that they've got behind it, their own use of data, and whether that's proprietary or, or secondary, um, and how that fits with our values as well and what we're looking to invest with. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I wanted to take a bit of a look at net zero reporting. So that was a big theme last year in the lead up to COP26. We had lots of companies announcing net zero commitments. Um, but I think what we need to understand, and you mentioned a bit about science-based targets, but is how what are companies doing right now? There's all well and good committing to net zero 20, 40, 50, 60, 70. But what, what are the approaches that people are uh, are taking now. I mean, Stephanie, maybe you could talk a bit about some of the challenges that are going with setting these net zero targets and how that they how these companies can report on them. Yeah, so it's certainly an area that we're you know encouraging a lot more disclosure around. But fundamentally, you know, disclosure is the end point. It's it's actually the target setting, and what what we're seeing in the engagement with with companies is very much. Well, to be able to disclose the target, they need to work through, you know, what is that pathway? So it's fine. The twenty fifty target can be an aspirational one. When you start having nearer term targets, it's actually understanding you know how quickly that business can move what investment is required internally to redirect and to deliver on on that decarbonization and you know these are really strategic questions um you know for businesses you know you're looking at, at you know in some cases quite fundamental you know shifts in that in in what the sector outlook is and and you know boards questioning their you know their business model their their operating environment in in quite a you know quite a lot of, of detail so yes methodologies um you know help like sbti you know there are challenges when you're looking at sector decarbonization pathways because you know yes what it means broadly for a sector but what does it mean for you as a company in your operating um environment what you know what are you able to do how are you how you set up in terms of where you're operating within that you know sector value stream for example so you know i think what what we're seeing is a phase where we're going very much from the you know high level commitment intent ambition to actually what is the detail and how are we going to get there and that you know necessarily makes it a lot more nuanced and detailed mm. and to a certain extent less comparable and i think that's also what we're seeing you know, some of those data, you know, the targets that we're seeing being disclosed have different, you know, different scopes in terms of one, two and three, different proportions of the business, different parts of the business. Um, so I, th I think it's very much something that, that you, you know, you, you need to look at that, that detail. And despite a lot of or increasing standardization, there's still quite a lot of disparity between the, you know, the, the strength, the scope um, of, of the targets that we're seeing. Mm. And Paul, you must speak to lots of different companies. Um, is that something that you're experiencing as well? These differing levels and of integration. And yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one thing that we we're looking for when we invest in companies is that uh, at a senior management level, you know, they've embedded net zero in the overall kind of corporate strategy, rather than just seeing it as some sort of reporting initiative. Um, so we're looking to see how companies are adapting 
to this challenge and whether they're turning it into a business opportunity. Um, and I think that's quite important because, you know, effectively we need to see a complete reformatting of the industrial economy. Uh, and so the changes are enormous. Um, but for many companies, we can't really see a huge amount of change happening. Um, and there's a lot of kind of defensive positioning uh, or even possibly greenwashing going on and try to, uh, to try to cut through that. We're looking from a kind of, uh, at a top level, uh, a serious understanding that this is, is, is a critical uh, enabler of the business growth in the future. Mm. Yeah, it's disappointing to, see, to hear that you're seeing some of that going on. Um, hopefully that will, that will change pretty soon. As I think there are lots of, um, lots of investors are not sort of accepting this anymore, like we've been talking about. They want to see the evidence and there will be cracking down on that. Nacho, what's um, your stance on net zero re reporting and the conversations that you're having with corporates about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the pressure on companies to disclose more data, and as Stephanie said, interim targets, which we can monitor and assess, I think is only growing. I think there's been a meaningful change over the past two years or so. And just from the credit markets where I sit, you know, there's this huge new market that has come almost out of nowhere in the past five, 10 years of sustainable <coughs> fixed income. If companies want to have access to green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds, social bonds, they need to be in a position where they can communicate a strategy that investors will buy into. And I think that is changing. Europe is very much more ahead of the curve than the US, and the US is ahead of the curve versus emerging markets. But we are seeing this wave mm. of momentum start to shift. Yeah, hopefully that continues. And, and Tom, what about your clients? Are they asking about um, fund, fund managers and their net zero commitments? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're finding increasingly that our clients are wanting to understand not only the broad portfolio that, that they have exposure to within the markets, but what that means in terms of and how that links to any sustainable or sustainability goals. And ultimately, the underlying investments and what ethos will drive those businesses that we invested through. And it is increasingly sort of permeating those discussions that, that we're having at a client level. Okay, fantastic. Okay, um, I wanted to move on to um, climate adaptation now. This was um, a bit of a buzzword following the last um, IPCC report, um, but it was described as the forgotten topic or something that was put in the too hard basket. But we're seeing the paper also provided scientific evidence on adaptation. There's now a sense of urgency around adaptation finance. Um, but the current level of commitments are described as a drop in the ocean. So we can say there's there's not there's a bit of a mismatch here. Um, so I wanted to ask all of you about your interpretations of adaptation from the IPCC report. And what does that essentially mean for the financial industry? Stephanie, I'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. So I think when we look at climate risk, we we and TCFD frames this as, you know, transition and, and physical risks. And I think it's important that we also focus on the physical risks and the physical risks aren't just, you know, in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, one of the things we saw from um, uh, the, the mitigation IPCC report was, you know, we're very much seeing some of those impacts of a changing climate and increased temperatures right now. So actually, there's an adaptation discussion within the companies we're investing in as well, in terms of, you know, where are they located? How robust are the supply chains? You know, how, how resilient are they to, um, you know, a, a number of sort of physical hazards? So I think there's certainly that adaptation piece and, you know, investment and sort of thinking through how companies are positioned already and and um, we're seeing that sort of you know transition and physical risk physical risk response um come through i think you know more broadly 
you know, again, what are those types of, you know, how, how do we need to think about adaptation and, you know, particularly in the context of sort of longer lived, you know, infrastructure as well. You know, we know some, you know, we know we are going to see increasing climate impacts. So and what does that mean, you know, particularly for those, those longer lived pieces of, um, of infrastructure? And I think, you know, we're seeing one that being much more of a uh, an issue in terms of you know evaluating investments um, you know upfront, but but we're also going to need to look at you know things like flood defence walls, etc. You know some some you know some different physical um, infrastructure that will help us um, uh, adapt. I think one of the the other issues that I think probably hasn't been taken on board um, uh, as much to date is is the impact of of heat. You know, so the kind of the heat stress and what that means. You know, for because even quite marginal increases or, or longer periods of time at heightened temperature can mean you know quite significant impacts for you know technical manufacturing as well as the you know the the, the impact on on people. Mm. Absolutely. And um, Paul, how would you, how do you um, consider adaptation in your portfolios or in your conversations? Yeah. So our our climate transition fund has three dedicated kind of strategies within it. One of them, one of them is climate solution companies, uh, so solar and renewable energy and batteries. The other piece is the hard to abate companies and industries like steel and cement and mining, which we think are, are crucial because these are the ones that have most of the emissions that we need to fix. And then the final piece is adaptation. So we've identified around about 200 companies globally that uh, have uh, the ability to sell products and solutions to companies to help them adapt to climate change. And we think this is a, a crucial business opportunity as well. Uh, we think adaptation is an enormous uh, essential business service which is going up in demand uh, and the reality is we are off track with net zero so the role of adaptation grows year by year mm. uh, and so businesses need to start investing now to make themselves more resilient to the impacts mm. of climate change. Yeah and actually when you're having conversations how would you say businesses are splitting their time between mitigation and adaptation? Um, I think the focus has very much been more on mitigation it's slowly transitioning more towards adaptation very similar to what Paul said, we are we think about it in sort of a very similar sort of context. There are various different companies in the credit universe that we call climate change innovators. They may not necessarily have big carbon footprints themselves, but essentially they are producing products and services that can be used very easily within other companies' business change to help them adapt their businesses. So we are increasingly finding more opportunities in that space. But I think the focus is changing. Companies are realizing that this is a topic that investors now want to talk more aggressively about when they mm. meet them and they have to have some plans in place um, to communicate what they intend to do um, and I only think that that will grow. Mm. And Tom is that something that um, you think has sort of been a growing topic in your conversations adaptation? Uh, yes and no I think mitigation has been by far the biggest okay. discussion point from a fund management perspective. And I think that that's partly down to the fact that so many groups are still relatively young into this mm. process. That is true. Interestingly, adaptation is has been growing as a point of discussion, particularly within some of our infrastructure strategies and broader real assets. Mm. Okay, great. I've got a question from the audience now. Um, in your individual assessment of companies, do you concentrate stronger on the effect of climate change on the company or of the company on climate change? Tom, I'll start with you first. 
Could you say all of that? Yeah. <laughs> in your individual assessment of companies, do you concentrate stronger on the effect of climate change on the company or of the company on climate change? Okay. Yeah, that's a nice question. Um, I mean, obviously, we're looking at it from a fund management yes. perspective, so we're looking at it at a portfolio level. So really, I think our focus is around the engagement points that they, the fund management group have with the underlying. Mm. And I suppose that almost plays to sort of engagement versus avoidance yeah. from a fund management perspective, and we would always favour engagement okay. um, within that. Obviously, within certain parameters, mm. but we would favour engagement. Great. I've got some questions for, for you on engagement okay. soon. So. Um, Paul, do you want to take a, um, that question? Do you want me to read it out again? No, no, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're, we're particularly targeting um, net zero and businesses' ability to adapt and transition to net zero. So we're kind of looking at the impact that a company can have on, on uh, decarbonizing its operations and, and its business. Um, there are obviously a whole bunch of risk factors that can impact a, a company uh, from the climate perspective. And, and we're very cautious of that. I mean, a good example would be the insurance sector, which is potentially underpricing the risks of climate change on its business. Uh, and that's something that we, we are attuned to, and it uh, makes us worry about the long-term kind of outlook for that industry. If we see more and more natural disasters, fires and floods, etc., uh, how is that uh, business going to adapt to this? So it's something that we do worry about. But I'd say more the former. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to move on because we have got quite a few more questions to get through. So, um, as Tom mentioned there, another big debate we have seen over the past few years is active engagement versus divestment. I think climate activists would like to see us all completely divest from fossil fuels. And there is a sense of urgency around around that, but this could also be quite damaging, especially on sort of local communities. And uh, We need to be taking those biggest polluters with us on that net zero journey. We need to be all moving along together and engage with them to be a part of that. Um, I wanted to ask all of you what your stance is and what are you asking either fund managers or the, the companies that you're dealing with? What are you asking them and how are you asking them around their transition? So Stephanie, I'll, I'll come with you first. Sure. So I mean, you know, the focus is very much on, on engagement. Um, However, one of the things that's tied to that is what's the escalation of that engagement? So great, here are the asks. Is the company responding? Is it continue to be, you know, happy to be invested? If they're not responding, how does that then, you know, how do you escalate as an in, as an investor? And so, you know, that that brings into play, you know, the sort of voting decisions where where it's, uh, you know, equity. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen a number of shareholder resolutions, but it's not just that. It's, you know, we, our voting policy looks at, um, you know, holding individual directors responsible if we think they are, you know, not addressing a um, you know systemic um, an important risk for them as a company. So so voting, you know, can can be broader than just. Um, uh, uh, you know, on, on shareholder resolutions, you know, things like, you know, where, where it may be appropriate to have remuneration linked to specific decarbonisation, you know, you, you have the remuneration vote as well. Um, you know, obviously, there's escalation more broadly within the engagement, um, uh, I suppose, process as well. But ultimately, you know, where we're active investors, there's a decision to be made that if we think the company isn't transitioning, we can exit that position. Mm. And that so it's, it's part of that that's journey, it's one of the elements. But I think, you know, that's different from 
Xing out entire yes. entire industries. I'd say one area where we are seeing more of that is around thermal coal. Mm-hmm. Now it will be interesting to see what you know this most uh, you know sort of the Ukraine um, situation and what that has meant for um, you know energy security, particularly in in um, in Europe, will mean around that balance of, of thermal coal versus um, you know other uh, energy generation mix, which has generally been you know decarbonizing. Um, you know, quite strongly, but I think that that's the one area where we, um, you know, mm. we're seeing more sort of client interest as well mm. around, you know, excluding essentially the the worst parts. But you know, within that, it is a transition piece. You mm. know, energy generators are moving away, but still have, you know, coal. So for us, it's very much a sort of, you know, escalation and an active decision around that transition and whether the company is well positioned or not. Mm. Okay, thank you. And Nacho, I wanted to, yeah, same question. On, I mean, I know Federated Homies has a big active engagement team. Um, what, what do you talk to clients about in terms of what they're asking for exclusion policies and um, that transitional finance element? Somewhat depends on where the client is located. There are okay. some regions, particularly in Europe, where, you know, there has been more of a, a government directive around certain sectors and less involvement in those sectors. So the Nordics being one, they're very very anti-fossil fuel investing. Um, I'd say beyond that, most of the time in Europe, it's very much more on the transition argument. For us, you know, we like to invest in credible transition stories. We firmly believe in engagement. But as Stephanie says, you know, engagement cannot be used as an excuse to hold, you know, bad companies that are regressing or not meeting what they said they were going to do. So if the engagement doesn't work out for us, we have no real other choice right now other than to sell. Um, and see mm. if the company will then change their minds in terms mm. of their plans and policies that they have in place. Mm. Okay, and, and Tom, what what are your conversations with fund managers like around engagement and how are you holding them accountable for that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's disinvestment. Mm. I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest tool mm. that you've got. And it's interesting because we, we apply the exact same approach realistically than you would at a, at a company level, which is, you know, we have a certain bar that we expect uh, the underlying fund manager to meet um, and we will invest with them accordingly but we would be looking for them to have procedures in place at the level of primarily engagement driven but to be operating their own standards of potential disinvestment if that doesn't prove to to develop the sort of pathway that they'd be looking for and we'd apply that ourselves so we're using data I mean we we have to use data um, that's available to us to track the underlying fund management groups um, and that we're invested with and that would be one of our points of engagement mm. but I think you know one of the cornerstones of things like SFDR is around promotion of ESG in, mm. uh, in, its, in the whole within our industry so we should be you know, fulfilling that brief and we'll be looking for the underlying managers to do likewise. Mm, absolutely. Um, and Paul, do you have anything to add on that sort of active engagement versus divestment in argument? How are you holding the companies you invest in accountable for the, the, the promises they made in their conversations with you? Yeah, I think, as Tom was saying, ultimately, yeah, you, you do divest. I mean, we, we're an Article 9 fund, and I think the SFDR has been a useful kind of a way to kind of uh, emphasise and, and uh, prioritise the kind of strategic direction of, of a strategy. The, um, you know, we have a very active engagement program and ultimately uh, we want to be able to judge companies and, and, and measure their successes 
And if we feel like uh, they're not achieving it, or they've overpromised, or uh, underdelivered, um, ultimately, you know, we'll 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 uh, divest from them. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, another question from the audience here. Um, what can private credit investors do to pursue net zero goals when engagement with portfolio companies isn't straightforward? Um, actually, I'll come to you on that one. <laughs> Sorry, private credit companies. What can private credit investors do to pursue net zero goals when engagement with portfolio companies isn't straightforward? Um, so I work mainly on the public credit side. So we're dealing with companies that generally have listed equity. So we mm. have bond investors, but also equity investors talking to them. I actually think on the private credit side, it's a slightly different approach that you would take. Mm. Um, one thing that's been interesting is Private credit typically is driven by LBOs, so companies that are bought by financial sponsors. And you would think that those objectives of those financial sponsors are quite different from um, an ESG-focused investor, but actually they are merging. You know, the LBO financing has changed quite materially over the past two years or so. We have seen instances where you know LBO financing has included some green component attached to it. So they're realizing that there is an investor base for this that will buy it. If they have a credible plan and a credible strategy, potentially there is the ability for them to get cheaper financing. So a slightly different approach, potentially more influence because it's private credit owned mm. company. Um, you have very few investors to satisfy in terms of aspirations. But it is, I think it is changing more for the positive. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Does anyone else want to have a, a go at that question on the private credit side? Okay, <laughs> but I would I just would comment that actually I think you're seeing similar things on the private equity side. Yeah, which I know is a slightly different, clearly a different market, but actually a very well sort of evolved mm. side of ESG, given the the amount of control and and leverage that a private equity house has. Mm. Okay, um, another question we've had is. Um, what was what is the one thing that you would like to see um, come out of COP twenty seven? Stephanie, I'll come with you first. <laughs> is your closest to me? <laughs> um, well, obviously, I mean, sort of the, the the technical elements that sort of were, I suppose, in certain sense, parked at COP twenty six. So yeah. you know, it was you know, there's not enough climate finance when it comes to you know so so it's like well everyone go back to the table come back at cop 27 and bring something better you know we saw some ratcheting of of the um the ndcs the the, the country level targets but you know not you know not to to the to the sort of scale that was was um well is needed if you look at you know what what they should deliver in terms of temperature um temperature rise so it was like we, there's an expectation of the, the ratcheting coming through at, at COP27. But clearly the world has you know, seen some pretty significant events since then. Mm -hmm. So I think for, for me, it's really, it's, you know, are we going to see a, if not global cooperation, because I think we've seen that, um, you know, I think that the recent events have, have, have um, you know, shown the, the, the huge challenges there are around that. But is there still that, you know, centre of, of, of gravity and leadership to continue to drive the decarbonisation mm. um, that, that we need to see? And I think for me, the, the, you know, one of the key uh, outputs, I hope, is, uh, you know, very clear... I suppose, you know, sense and evidence that that is continuing. So, you know, mm. yes, there are some real challenges we need to deal deal with. Yes, energy security, you know, yes, cost of living. 
but actually how do we come up with some of those solutions that are also delivering on on um you know the imperative of mm. of net zero yeah fantastic it's, i think yeah the importance is what we, what are we doing right now rather than considering this further down the line um Natu, is there anything that you would like to see come out of cop 27 i think you know we as investors um can only do so much so I think we are reliant on governments and regulators potentially upping the ante in terms of the speed with which they want to see companies actually transition to possibly more further regulation or guidance around mm. what companies actually need to do. Okay, fantastic. Tom? I, mean, I, agree with, I agree with all of that. I mean, my personal view is actually there's a, quite a lot that we can do mm. within finance, but it's got to be done collectively. And it's easy for yes. one of us to sit there and say that, but it's, it's got to be done collectively because ultimately money... Mm. capital is the way to 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 really push change but i think i you know i'd echo those those views Mm. something tangible yes i think what a lot of the interviews that we had or we've had on esg clarity the uh, ceos of asset managers are all talking about industry collaboration so hopefully everyone is on the same page and we can push forward together on that um what would you like to see paul from cop 27 definitely more tangible um uh, focused um, targets. I guess uh, COP26 was disappointing. I, I worry that the next one, you know, there's been so many things happened since the last one that uh, it's going to be kind of derailed again uh, with the war, also energy crisis, um, and all sorts of uh, challenges to the kind of global economy right now. So I, I guess I'm, I'm really hoping that they, we can see more collaboration. We've also got the midterm as in, in the US and the impact that might have on US uh, carbon markets. So uh, there's a lot to go for. Mm. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, Do we have any questions from the live audience rather than Slido, just before I continue? Okay, great. Um, One uh, last question for all of you, actually. We'll we'll, um, bring it to a close there as we are running out of time. But um, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about climate reporting, adaptation, net zero, engagement, what would be your one action point or key takeaway for the audience today to take away from this? I'll I'll reverse it. I'll come to you first, Paul. Well, I think that the tipping point has passed. We are seeing an enormous kind of momentum towards this this wave of investment in the transition, which is fantastic. You know, Mm. we've been kind of waiting for this for a long time. It was on the fringe of finance for many, many years. Mm. Um, So... I think even the events we've seen with COVID, the war, are, are all kind of adding to this kind of urgency. And, and my one takeaway is, is this is a you know, great sign that we're starting to see uh, some serious movement in, in finance. Fantastic. Okay. Tom? I mean, I think it really would just be sort of to echo what we, our experience as, as investing in, in funds, which is to hold the underlying accountable, to hold their feet to the fire, and to combine mm. data with that qualitative engagement as a means of really sort of broadening out your own understanding. Mm, absolutely. Very good point there. And actually, yeah, slightly apt for your next panel, actually. I think you will start to see more linkage between climate issues and social issues mm. going forwards. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Stephanie? Um, yeah, I think it's about em- embracing the detail and the complexity. I think we know what needs to happen, you know, we know the urgency, but we also know it's not straightforward. So actually recognize that there is, you know, there are going to be difficult conversations, there are going to be, you know, judgments to be made. 
it's not going to be a clean, maybe misusing that word, transition. It's going to be messy. So actually, you know, get ready for that. But that's fine. We need to make these significant changes. Um, and, you know, we all need to get engaged in understanding what that means and what that means for our investments. Fantastic. Um, we have got one more quick question specifically for Tom. So, you are on the spot now. As you primarily work with the data the fund managers provide to you, how do you cope with divergences in the data providers? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Well, we we came to the conclusion on that that we had to buy in our own data as well, so that we mm. can have a degree of consistency. Um, our conclusion on that whole long six month nine month beauty parade was that. It's the real. It's the wild west out there at the moment in terms of data, um, you know, and then trying to find a consistency of data and the calculation methodology. We can see there was a number of really good groups, and you know, um, who are who are pushing and forging ahead in this space. Mm. And it's about getting coverage and breadth of coverage. It's about shifting into coverage of both the equity and the bond space, as well as then into the more alternatives. Um, all of the sort of questions about how to tackle portfolios that have long short positions so lots going on and you know I won't say who we ended up going with but you know we're, we're spending a lot of money on data and even then when we ask questions we're getting answers which are algorithms not not answers mm. so it really does feel like a difficult space but our only response to that is to use our own consistent level of data and then compare that with the level of questioning and answers that we're getting from the underlying groups. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I will um, end that there. Thank you uh, for a fantastic panel. So really interesting points there from the panel on net zero targets and climate reporting. Look out for later episodes on social investing, corporate governments and thematic investing for a sustainable future. But for now, here's Emma. The orchestra project is, well... Orchestra is an acronym. We love acronyms in science. It's a rather convoluted one. Uh, it stands for the Ocean Regulation of Climate by Heat and Carbon Sequestration and Transport, which is a bit of a mouthful. But basically, it's taught, it's all to understand the Southern Ocean. As I mentioned before, the Southern Ocean is really crucial for the climate system because it takes up a lot of heat and also takes up a lot of the carbon dioxide that we add to the planet and that go into the ocean. So it's really important place in the climate system. Um, and we want to further our understanding of how the heat and carbon is entering the Southern Ocean and where it goes and what, how that might change in the future. So the orchestra project was, is just coming to an end. It was uh, funded over $10 million by the natural, sorry, 10 million pounds by the Natural Environment Research Council. And it spanned six years. And it, it was a real multidisciplinary project with lots of scientists from many different UK research institutes. Uh, so the improvements in our understanding that came through orchestra led, have led to already led to improvements in the kind of climate models that the Met Office use. Um, and it also supported um, about 10 Antarctic voyages, three aircraft flights, and produced over 250 terabytes of modeling data and dozens of papers. So my work on that was using the adjoint modeling technique I explained earlier to look at exactly how the heat um, in the Southern Ocean is affected by the winds and, and, and the radiation that's coming in. And the results that I found were quite interesting. So we found 
So it's not very surprising that the amount of heat right on top of that pool, those pools of water is really important, but that the winds can affect them from really far away and actually from many, many years before. So it can be many years before you see the impacts of those changing winds on the heat that's going into the Southern Ocean. So I found that really interesting. It was a really nice to be part of such a big project that's um, had a really big impact on the, the our understanding already. Can you talk us through a typical day of your work on that project? I mean, I can't imagine it, any day is, is particularly similar, but um, what, yeah, what, what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, so every day is a bit different. So um, what I might do in the morning is have a look at see what the, uh, analysis that I've been running on the uh, computer has been up to. So check my code is running okay. I hope that it worked as expected. Um, so I'll run some analysis on some model data and then I might take a look at that data. So I'll make some plots to check that everything worked okay, to look at like, see if it looks like how I expected. Um, and then I'll try and maybe think, can I understand the physics behind what I'm seeing? Um, might plot how things are changing over time or put them on a map to look at how things changed in, in different parts of the Southern Ocean. Then I might have a meeting with a colleague to show them my analysis and say, look, I've, my analysis worked, the code didn't break, and here's, here's my plots and we'll discuss it together and try and um, figure out if it answers any of the questions that we're investigating or does it bring up any more questions that we might want to look at further. So then I might um, run some more analysis or if I'm happy with the results, I might start to write those up in a kind of formal paper for, for a scientific journal. And if this one's kind of coming to an end, I mean, it sounds like you, you know, you got some results and they were, you know, interesting results. So that I suppose is a success, right? As far as kind of projects like this go, um, is, is there any plans to, to take this on? What's the next step for this? So this particular project is coming to an end. It has been really successful and the, um, the team at BAS are gonna to continue to study the Southern Ocean. The next big project that we're going to be involved with um, uh, has more of a biological angle to it. It's looking at how the biology in the Southern Ocean interacts with the chemistry. So the biology in the Southern Ocean can actually impact the amount of carbon dioxide in the Southern Ocean. So lots of I don't I'm not a biologist so I'm probably going to explain this terribly but lots of the small creatures that live in the southern ocean use carbon dioxide sorry use the carbon from the seawater to make their shells and also um, when they die and they sink to the bottom of the ocean they kind of take that carbon with them um, and there's all sorts of interactions with the oxygen and the nutrients in the southern ocean that can have a very when you add it all up even all these so all these creatures are tiny that can have a big impact on the actual amount of total amount of carbon dioxide in the Southern Ocean. So that's something that we're looking at next. I'm going to be looking at how um, using a kind of my expertise, which is to look at um, the kind of the currents, the how the water moves around Antarctica and how that might move the things that are important for the biology, like the nutrients that they eat, how that might be moving around Antarctica. And I'm also going to be looking at uh, and I've got another project looking at the Arctic this time that's going to be looking at um, the important pathways for water coming out of the Arctic and how that um, interacts with the um, winds and the heat up there. So there's lots of exciting new things coming. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.